First uh, John three. While you're turning there, I'm gonna read a couple things and uh, a couple pages of things, and then we'll uh, we'll go to First John. First John's been killing me, killing me this week. Um, all right. So the plan for this week was to go straight into Romans eight. That's what I said last week. But on Monday morning, the Lord slowed me down to surprise me and us with a gift. At the end of the message last week, I mentioned Galatians 5.14, which says, The whole law is summed up and fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody, anybody remember that? If not, I just quoted it for you. So, um, Galatians 5.14, we ended it sort of last week. The whole law can be summed up and fulfilled, the entire old law, with one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's quoting Leviticus uh, 19.18, if you didn't know that. Um, okay, so as I spoke those words, they started to roll in the depths of my spirit. And I don't know if anybody else felt this last week, but I, I, and I, I just threw that in there. That was kind of a side verse for one of the points last week. But as the words were coming out of my mouth of that verse, Man, it started to just churn within me. And, um, and so the Lord slowed me down to really kind of go deeper into that. So uh, as I spoke that, it started to roll within me, and I started asking these questions, okay? Have I been focused on trying to fulfill the law of God without simply loving? Have I made it more difficult than it actually is? What if the reason holiness has seemed so worky is because we've tried to acquire the fruit of love through a mindset really rooted in hate. Let me, let me uh, get a little philo philosophical with you, okay? To not love is to hate. You either love or hate. There's no in-between, okay? You either love something or hate something, all right? Hate is a harsh word, but that's just reality, okay? So, in that mind of thinking, if you don't love something fully, you don't love it. And if you don't love it, what does that mean? You hate it. Well, I don't know about that. No, no, no. Apathetic love is hate. That, that should, that, amen. I'll amen. Ap apathetic love is hate. So if we give God apathetic love, he doesn't give us apathetic love right? Fruit of love through the mindset of hate. What if true theology isn't knowing the right things about God? What if true theology is knowing the love God is, which would lead to knowing everything else? He paused me on my journey in Romans, because I've been in Romans for a while now, and led me off on a trail that the further I go, I realize is uncharted. If you've been here since the beginning, you've heard us say that phrase, uncharted territory, over and over and over. The further I go into this, what we're going to talk about today, the more I realize this is the uncharted territory. <clears throat> that trail that he's been leading me, we're going down today on, is the book of 1 John, written by the beloved 1 John breaks down the foundational and irreplaceable value of love in the life of the believer. Love is both similar to holiness in that it is a primary fruit from and with righteousness. 
and unlike holiness in the sense that it has been the most used word in both the church and out of the church in modern history. <clears throat> to be honest, because of how watered down love has become, I have often subconsciously looked away from it to pursue greater revelation. I mean, y'all just getting insight into all my quiet time right now, okay? Every time the idea of love would pop up, immediately I would, at least in the past, I would be like, this awesome love, let's go deeper. You know what I'm saying? It's, this, is, this is something I started seeing this week. It's easier to introduce ideas no one has ever had language for, at least in recent memory, than it is to recover ideas that have become abused and misused and quite frankly misunderstood. So it's easy for me to teach on the kingdom. Here we go. I'm about to get everybody mad. You ready? It's easy for me to teach on the kingdom. Why? Because everybody grew up being taught the rapture was coming. And the kingdom and the rapture are two totally different things. Just to be clear, just to set it straight, if you believe in the rapture, you can't believe in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom requires that we establish something here. The rapture requires that you pack it up and put it on cruise control until he snatches you away. I might not want to be snatched away. You know, I told you I was going to make you mad. But we, we've, got, we've got to get this thing right. That's something the Lord's been showing me lately is, uh, you know, of course, Jesus made people mad by teaching the truth. Um, but the, the further we go down 2020, the more I realize I and y'all are going to have to speak some things that go very against the grain. And people are not going to like it. I thought that would happen around like 2050, like somewhere way down the road when I'm older. I did not think it would happen in 2020, to be honest with you. I didn't think so. But I'm rejoicing because, like I said earlier, authentic ones, authenticity is rising up in the midst of the chaos. It's like the storm. Jesus said, those who built their house on the sand, when the storm come, it knocked it over. But those who built their house on the rock, when the storm came, it stood strong, right? So the storm is coming in 2020. And we're seeing houses of cards, boop, 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 and then every now and then one will be standing strong, right? So I think it's a great thing. I don't want houses of cards to fall, but I kind of want houses of cards to fall, right? And in love, because our people, I guess the church is turning, Christians are, Christians are turning away from the church in astronomical rates right now. Tons of people are turning away. We don't believe in God anymore. We don't believe in the church anymore. I can do this thing on my own. I don't need the church. All that, that's what we're, that's the constant message in 2020. How many of you, uh, we said this a lot. How many of you have been around people that say, I don't need the church building because I'm the church wherever I go? You know what I mean? Uh, wrong. One problem. The Ecclesia church is literally the legislative body of the kingdom. So, so if you pull one congressman out of Congress, guess what he ain't? Anything in authority or she. But if you put them right back in Congress together, they have authority to make laws. So for people to say, you know, I'm, man, I don't need the church. I, I'm, I'm the church wherever I go. No, 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 no. You're only the church if you're part of the church. That is the church. You know what I'm saying? But, but that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this, this mass 
exodus right now. And if we're not careful, we'll get so distracted with everything else going on in the world that we'll miss what Yahweh's actually trying to do. Remember what he said in Isaiah 9? He said, the chopped down stump of Israel will be the holy seed for Israel. The chopped down stump. I'm chopping trees. I'm chopping trees. What are trees? Psalm 1. We the righteous ones are like trees planted by streams of water bearing fruit in every season. Trees are his people all throughout scripture. So in Isaiah 9, when he talks about chopping down trees, what he's actually talking about is chopping down pretenders until there is a stump left that can then grow into authentic moves and kingdom of God. Unbelievable. So the greater revelation, let me back it, let me back it up. So it's easier to teach new ideas than it is to teach old. So you talk about holiness, very difficult to teach. Why? Because people have been taught wrong about holiness for so long. Talk about love, which is what we're going to talk about today, attempt to. When you mention love immediately, I don't know about you, but if you've been in the church at all in your life, you're like, okay, here we go again. You know what I'm saying? Right? But I as a teacher, and you as believers, and also teachers, must be after both new revelation and recovering old revelation if the Lord's prayer is going to be fulfilled. The greater revelation is love. And the way we recover its original design is to demonstrate it rather than merely talk about it. Being holy as he is holy is simply a matter of loving as he loves. Holy as in holiness and love are synonymous in the kingdom of Yahweh. I'm about to prove it to you. Holy, which is the Greek word agios, holy, means, and we've been talking about this, set apart by and for God. Okay? So to be holy means to be set apart by and for God. Now, you ready for this? This, is, this was blowing me away this week. Love, okay? There are six Greek words for different kinds of love. Most of you know that. You've heard that. But the love we're about to read about in 1 John and primarily throughout the entire New Testament, there's a very few occurrences of anything other than this, okay? So the love that we're studying, the Greek word is agape, most people have heard that. I don't know if most people know what that means, though. Agape love, ready for this, means love centered around preference. So to agape means to prefer. That's literally the definition, to prefer. It's love based on preference. So together... Holy, agios, Greek, love, agape, together. Because you are preferred or chosen, which is agape love, because you're loved, preferred. And you prefer and choose others, love your neighbor as yourself, because of those two things, you are set apart, holy. You can't have holiness without going through love, and you can't love without it producing holiness. Uh, th th just think about that. Look, to prefer. 
Out of all six Greek words for different kinds of love, agape is the greatest and is always, 100% of the time, used in reference to divine love. In every single instance of 1 John 3, which we're about to read, it is agape. Yahweh doesn't just love you with an arbitrary love. He prefers you. Uh, this just, I don't know about, this, is, this rocked my world this week. He doesn't just love you with a random love. I got, man, I got to love them. Down on the cross, they said, yes, I guess I got to love them. Because that's what we think. Whether or not we say that, that's how we view God. It's so easy for people to lose their faith because they never thought he loved them in the first place. It really is. It's so easy. If you think somebody just tolerates you, it's real easy to break apart covenant. Because really, subconsciously, there never was covenant. But if you know somebody loves you as in they prefer you, in other words, Song of Songs says it like this, I could have had any, anyone, but I chose you. Yahweh doesn't just love us with an arbitrary love. He prefers us. What love then are we called to show our neighbors? Agape. So I am to prefer my neighbor above myself. That is holiness. So why don't I covet? Because the law says not to? Or because I prefer my neighbor so much that I rejoice in them being blessed? See how this changes? So do, why don't I covet? Because the law says not to covet? Or because I love my neighbor to the point where I don't covet them? Two totally different things. One, you're working. One, you're loving, which produces the work. You with me? Okay. So why don't I commit adultery? Because the law says not to? Or because I prefer my wife and my neighbor too much to trample on covenant? Why don't I worship idols? Because the law says not to, you shall have no other gods before me, or because I prefer Yahweh. That's what agape is. So he prefers us, which is the cross primarily. Through the cross resurrection, he proved his love for us. And then in return, our worship is to agape him back, is to reflect the same love he has for us right back to him. And then as we reflect it back to him, we reflect it to everyone else. So I prefer you. I don't just tolerate you. I don't just kind of love you. And I sure don't love you by just my words alone. I prefer you if I'm operating in holiness. Okay. So the way we keep holiness from becoming works-based is to root ourselves in love. I thought, some of you are here Tuesday night, so this is just review from some of that stuff, but I thought 2020 was about us seeing angels and seraphim and fire and the city of Columbia transformed in a day and turned to gold and all this other crazy stuff. That's what I thought 2020 was perfect vision. That's what I thought. That's not wrong. But I'm starting to realize that this has all been about us learning what love is. I had this vision. I shared it Tuesday night, but I just want to share it for everybody else. If you weren't here, 
this was, I think it was Tuesday morning, but I had this vision of, you know, when you go get glasses, you sit down in the chair and they put that giant machine. Does anybody know what that thing's called? What's that called? Does anybody know? Yeah. Okay. No idea. Anyway, they put the giant machine in front of you. Somebody's typing a comment right now on Facebook. Um, focus, focus. They put the big machine in front of you, and then, so you're still blurry. So if I take my glasses off, which my vision is not that bad, so I can still see everybody. But, all right, so your vision's kind of blurry. They put up a picture, at least if it's like mine, they put up a picture, and you're like, nah, I can't really see it. And then they start clicking lenses in place. And with every click, it gets closer and closer to your 2020 vision. So every time you see it a little clearer, a little clearer, a little clearer, and then finally there's the last. And all of a sudden it's like, I've never seen like this before. Right? Here's the funny thing about that. They then take that and use that to put frames and lenses into the glasses you wear every day. So the glasses I'm wearing today are a product of that last click, I guess three or four years ago at this point. I haven't been back in a long time. Okay? So here's what the Lord showed me, is that going throughout 2020, if I'm being honest, as he started speaking to us about this year, I thought it was going to be January 1st, 2020. Bam, we show up to church. Boom, heaven's everywhere. You know what I mean? The whole city of Columbia is waiting out the door. Right? And then you go throughout the year, and you start. If, you, if you're not careful, you'll take that, and as the year goes by, coronavirus hits. People aren't going to church anymore. People are protesting. It seems like everybody's divided. And you go throughout the year, and if you're not careful because you thought 2020 was going to look like something, or I thought 2020 was going to look like something, you'll start doubting every single thing you ever heard about 2020. Not because of him, but because of how you were viewing it. Right? So, I started realizing Tuesday, though, that what we've actually been in is not an immediate clear vision. It was clicks. And we saw a little clearer, and a little clearer, and a little clearer. We started talking about hope, a little clearer. Started talking about holiness, a little clearer. And then here's what I saw in the Spirit Tuesday, was that that final click went in, and it was love. Now, if I'm being honest, when I saw that, I responded, is that it? That's what we were waiting for? And what I've been, personally, is on a journey into seeing that this is actually everything. If we get this, we'll get the seraphim, angels, and fire. We will. But if we get the seraphim, angels, and fire, and of course I'm using that for all other moves of the Spirit. If we get all of that, but we don't get this, this will fizzle out like every other move of the Spirit in America. It will. And I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of something that's going to fizzle out. That's not the kingdom. I refuse. I refuse to be a part of something that fizzles out even if I'm by myself. And y'all quiet today. Don't miss this. If his kingdom is built on love, okay, his holy kingdom, if it's built on love, what does it mean that he has started to teach us 
about love. If his kingdom, if his kingdom is built on the foundation of love, we're about to read all this. What does it mean that he has started to teach us about love? Could it be that he's about to give us some keys? Could it be that he's about to start the process of fulfilling, maybe for the first time in history, other than the early church, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? The season of hope or preparation that we've been talking about, in my opinion, keeps getting better. So we died to sin, talked about that last week, but we died for love. We died to sin, but we died for love. Go to 1 John 3, and we'll start at verse 1 and find our way there at some point. Here we go. 1 John 3, verse 1. Okay, I just, I just heard some weird noise and squirrel. All right, verse one. Look with wonder at the depth of the Father's marvelous love he has lavished on us. He has called us and made us his very own beloved children. The reason the world doesn't recognize who we are is that they didn't recognize him. Beloved, we are God's children right now. However, it is not yet apparent what we will become, but we do know that when it is finally made visible, we will be just like him. For we will see him as he truly is. Okay, before I go on, that's one of the most difficult verses, two verses to break down, maybe in all of New, the New Testament, because it's so deep. So C.S. Lewis has this quote that I think goes really great along with this, and it's out of his book, The Four Loves, and this is the quote, one of my favorites he does. He says, when we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. When we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. What John is saying here is he's saying in super common English language, I don't know what we will be, but I do know when we see him, we'll realize we've been made just like him. That's what he's saying. He says, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what it'll look like. But what I do know is that when we see him, we'll realize we've been made just like him or in his image. He, that is awesome. So awesome. Verse 3, and all who focus, here it comes, all who focus their hope, all who focus their hope on him will always be purifying themselves just as Jesus is pure. Lord, help us not stop at every verse. Do y'all hear that? All who hope on Jesus will be purifying themselves just as Jesus is pure. Your hope purifies you. 
So the season of hope is a season of purification as well, right? Because you keep hoping for what you don't hold yet, but as you hope for what you don't hold, James 1 enters into the picture where as your faith is tested, it develops perseverance, and as your perseverance comes to completion, it makes you mature and complete, not lacking anything, right? So to get to the point where you're mature and complete, not lacking anything, your faith has to be tested, so the season of hope is on purpose because what he actually designs is for us to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So don't reject the season when your faith is tested. All it is is him morphing you into who you're designed to be, which is lacking nothing. Mature and complete. Okay, y'all with me? Okay. Verse four, and I'm gonna read a good bit now. So anyone, anyone who indulges in sin lives in moral anarchy for the definition of sin is breaking God's law. And you know, without a doubt that Jesus was revealed to eradicate sins and there is no sin in him. Now I'm about to read some stuff that if I said it without reading it in scripture, most people would be real angry at me. So I'm just going to read it. And y'all take it up with John one day when you see him. You ready? Anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin. But the one who continues sinning hasn't seen him with discernment or known him by intimate experience. Delightfully loved children, don't let anyone divert you from this truth. Hello. The person who keeps doing what is right proves that he is righteous before God, even as the Messiah is righteous. But the one who indulges in a sinful life is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was revealed was to undo and destroy the works of the devil. Who? What? Brother, the devil's really got me right now. No, 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 no. The reason the Son of God was revealed was to undo and destroy the works of the devil. Mm, how far do we go? Verse 9, everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning because God's seed remains within him and he is unable to continue sinning because he has been fathered by God himself. Here is how God's children can be clearly distinguished from the children of the evil one. Ready? So here's how God's children are set apart from those of the evil one, holiness. Anyone who does not demonstrate righteousness and show love to fellow believers is not living with God as his source. I mean, this is unbelievable. <laughs> the definition, he says, of sin is breaking God's law. Okay? Remember Galatians 5. That the whole law can be summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself, right? 
So the definition of sin is breaking God's law. The idea in verses 4 through 10 is that if you've been filled with light, and if you're being filled with light, you'll have no room for darkness. This is the whole idea. That's why he says what he says in 5 and 9, which is what I read. He says, uh, anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin. And then in verse 9, he says, everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning. What is he saying? He's not saying works. This is John, the beloved. So if anybody's against the workspace thing, it's John. So that's not what he's talking about. What John is talking about is if you have been born again, the fruit from your life will not be sin anymore. It'll be righteousness, primarily love. So he's not talking about you doing something or you not doing something. He's saying, if this is your identity, you won't do this, right? So, so Veda is our daughter, and we say this all the time. We say, Veda, because you're ours or because you're a good girl, you're not going to do that. That's what we say all the time. So we don't just say, you know, Veda, you're being awful right now. We don't do that. If you do that, awesome, that's your thing. But... We say, Veda, you are a good girl, so we're not going to do this, right? So what does it do? We come on the back end, and we say, because this is your identity, you operating in this is you operating in something that you are not. That's what we're saying, right? So then it's, it's natural for her to operate in who she is because all we do is affirm and reaffirm who she is. But if all we're reaffirming is what she does wrong, then it'll be natural for her to operate in what is wrong because she's never been told what is right, which is ultimately her identity. So what John is not saying is, is brother, you better stop sinning and stop sinning and keep saying no to sin. What he's saying is, if you've truly said yes to him, you won't sin. Doesn't say you won't mess up. There's forgiveness and there's grace. He's not talking about those. He's talking about you habitually choosing sin. That's what he's talking about, okay? So, so when, you, when you slip up or you mess up, you shouldn't condemn yourself and say, man, I must not be a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who keep sinning, habitually choose a life of sin when you've been set apart by God. So if you're constantly choosing sin over and over and over and over and over, it's a sign that you haven't been set apart away from sin, right? So it's like, well, Josh, that's harsh. Well, first off, that's John. You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why, why do we do that? The gospel, the gospel is a barrier. You know, well, brother, I don't know about that teaching. I, I can't help you. Number one. But number two, see, this is freeing for me. So I don't hear this and say, well, man, like, I got to stop sinning. I hear this and say, it is actually possible for me to be free indeed. In fact, it's natural for me to be free indeed. 1 John 1.5, if you go back, says, God is pure light. You will never find even a trace of darkness in him. So literally what that is, is God is so full of light that darkness has no room to come in. That's what he's saying in, in uh, 1 John 1, 5. So that's what John is talking about. Those who by agape love have been restored to image bearing, 
We should mimic God in being so full of light that darkness has no place. If you've been agape loved by God and restored to your image-bearing capacity, we should, we should um, pursue mimicking God and being so full of light that darkness has no room. That's why the secret place is imperative imperative. It's not just something that preachers should do. Preachers should definitely do more of it, but it's not just something that preachers should do or that people who are full of the Spirit should do. All Christians should be full of the Spirit. It's something that every believer is called to do because in the secret place, he begins to shed such a light in you, Ephesians 5 says, that it brings everything hidden to the light so that it turns it into truth. So the longer you're in the midst of the light, the less darkness there is within you because light exposes darkness. If this room is dark and I light a candle, it's a very small light. However, the whole room will be lit up. So when Yahweh, who's not just a flicker, but is pure light without a trace of darkness, starts to shine on you and I, what begins to happen? Darkness runs. It doesn't even attempt to coexist. It sprints away. Okay, verse 6, verse 6, he says, The one who keeps sinning, that's that habitual thing, hasn't seen him or known him. Matthew seven sixteen kind of says it like this. Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So you or I struggling with the same junk we struggle with before we were born again is a sign that love has not completed its work in you and I. There are still places in you and I that light hasn't shined to the point that darkness has no room. Let me read footnote F right here. Just to make sure that you guys are rocking with me. Dr. Brian Simmons says this. He says, the present tense of the Greek verb, talking about sin, throughout the whole section indicates a behavior that is persistent and habitual. So John is not speaking of those who are yet to walk in complete victory, but those who continue sinning and find ways to excuse and justify it. Man, I want to spend so much time there. As a believer... As a believer, here's what our life should look like, okay? Because we've been righteous, number one, we should live righteous. Number one. So what does it mean to live righteous? It means that you seek first the kingdom of God. It means that Jesus is your one thing. It means that day in and day out, when you feel it, when you don't feel it, when the weather's bad, when the weather's good, no matter what's going on in your life, the secret place is the one constant. So, so you are constantly, like I taught about Veda, being reaffirmed of your identity. That's what living in righteousness means. Now, when you are living in righteousness and you sin, in that moment, that's where conviction comes in, which is part of God's love. God, what does he do? Disciplines those he loves. So conviction comes in, 
brings that thing up, and then you, through the blood of Jesus, instead of having to go offer an animal, you then can approach the throne of grace boldly and make your petition known, which in that point is, I've messed up, but there's blood to cover it, and you're restored right back to your right standing. So he's not talking about victorious ones who live in that. He's talking about ones who sin but keep finding excuses to, for it to be okay. Y'all with me? Is that clear? Because I don't want people to leave here and be like, well, Josh said we need to be perfect. No, 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 no. I'm saying you are perfect, so your life should start to mimic what you are. Okay. Uh, verse 10, verse 10, he says this, and I'm, I'm going to read through it, I promise. Uh, verse 10, he says, this is how God's children are set apart from those of the evil one, demonstrating righteousness and showing love to fellow believers. Demonstrating righteousness. We are set apart from unbelievers because we trust God and we love each other. We trust God and we love each other. Let, let me say, uh, let me hit this real quick and then we'll jump into 11. In verse nine, this is a really interesting note I wanna say. Verse nine, Everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning because God's seed remains with him and he is unable, unable to continue sinning because he has been fathered by God himself. Okay, in verse nine, uh, that word right there, I'm, I'm gonna edit this a little bit. Because God's seed remains within him is exactly what you think it is. I'll just say it like that. You ready? So, so what is he doing? Is he, is he is planting new life within you as you live in new life with him. Okay. So, so what does seed do? It births, creates new life, right? So you are able to live in righteousness because God's seed is within you birthing righteous deeds, righteous identity, righteous communion with him within you continually. Is that not amazing? All right, so verse 11, verse 11. The beautiful message you've heard right from the start is that we should walk in self-sacrificing love towards one another. We should not be like Cain who yielded to the evil one and brutally murdered his own brother, Abel. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers righteous. So don't be shocked, beloved brothers and sisters, if you experience the world's hatred. Yet, we can be assured that we have been translated from spiritual death into spiritual life because we love the family of believers. Listen to this. A loveless life remains spiritually dead. A loveless life remains spiritually dead. Everyone who keeps hating a fellow believer is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing within him. I mean, John is using some, some harsh language. Y'all hear this? If you don't love your fellow believer, you're a murderer. Ouch. I mean, that, could, that should convict anybody watching this, right? This is how we have discovered love's reality. 
Jesus sacrificed his life for us. The agape, preferential love. He gave his life because he preferred us over himself. Because of this great love, we should be willing to lay our lives down for one another. If anyone sees a fellow believer in need, listen to this. If anyone sees a fellow believer in need and has the means to help him, yet shows no pity and closes his heart against him, how is it even possible that God's love lives in him? Beloved children, our love cannot be an abstract theory we only talk about, but a way of life demonstrated through our loving deeds. Do I mean, do y'all hear this stuff? I love this stuff. This is amazing. Our love cannot be an abstract theory that we just talk about, but a way of life. We know that the truth lives within us because we demonstrate love in action, which will reassure our hearts in his presence. Almost done. Whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our conscience, and he knows everything there is to know about us. My delightfully loved friends, when our hearts don't condemn us, we have a bold freedom to speak face to face with God. And whatever we ask of him, we receive. We receive because we keep his commands and by our beautiful intentions, we continue to do what brings pleasure to him. So his commands are these. What are his commands? that we continually place our trust in the name of his son, Jesus, and that we keep loving one another. It's really not hard. I've made it so much more difficult than it actually is. I've strived for everything except this, if I'm being honest with you. Two commands. Two commands you need to spend your whole life pursuing, John says. Placing your trust in Jesus continually and loving one another. For all who obey his commands find their lives joined in union with him, and he lives and flourishes in them. We know and have proof that he can constantly lives and flourishes in us by the spirit he has given us. All right. So the proof of our new identity is that we love. So think about this. Think about this. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that the proof of you being saved or the righteousness of God is how big of a ministry you have or how many ministry acts you do or how much you give to the poor or how much you do X, Y, and Z. That's not what he says. He says, this is the proof in verse 14. This is the proof of your new identity that you love. That convicted the mess out of me. How many times have I sought to validate who I am by a prophetic word or a sign and a wonder rather than seeing my validation in how well I reflect the love I've been shown? I'm not, and hear me, I'm not discounting spiritual gifts in any way when I say that. I don't know how we got to the place that we, we separate love and all the spiritual gifts. There's, here's, here's the two denominations in America. 
It's all love and grace or all spiritual gifts. You can't have that one without that, and you can't have that without that. You know what I'm saying? We're either all in and people falling out in the spirit, or we're all in and doing relevant love stuff. That's all we do. So, so I'm not discounting spiritual gifts by talking about love. I'm actually elevating them by emphasizing that they be founded in preferential love. So, so when I go to pray for somebody, am I praying for them with the foundation motive within me? In 1 John 4, we'll probably hit that next week before Romans 8, the next. But in 1 John 4, when I pray for someone, is my motive love or is my motive validating my ministry? Right? Here's how you can prove that. Here's how you can prove it. If you pray for somebody and you don't see the answer immediately, do you feel down or do you feel solid? Because if you feel down, that means that the motive behind that probably wasn't just purely love. I mean, that's just, that's just a little litmus test, right? I think sometimes the Lord allows the answer to come when we don't see it so that it, he can show us that our motive wasn't, I want to love this person, that our motive was actually something other than love. And what John says is, in fact, I'll tell you that back, John doesn't say that. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. We might hit it before we leave. But he says, if I do this and this and this and this and this without the pure motive of love, it means nothing. Here, let's go. First, first Corinthians 13. Let me, just, let me just read. Don't turn there. Don't waste your time. Just listen to me. First Corinthians 13, verse 1. If, this is Paul, okay? If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I did not express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And listen to this verse right here. You ready for this? This is like one of those home run verses. If I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possess unending supernatural knowledge, and if I have the greatest gift of faith that I could move mountains, literally, but have never learned to love, I am nothing. So in, see, in, in the church world, we call that person influencer. I think there's a lot of people that nobody is listening to in the church that has learned how to love well that we really need to be listening to. I think there are mothers and fathers in the church that have some years behind them that we have totally discounted because maybe they don't have the greatest gift to speak. Maybe they don't have the greatest gift to do worship that they hold the key. I believe a lot of them hold the key to what the Lord is doing next, if we'll listen. Like Miss Noel loves more than anybody else I maybe have ever come in contact with. You do. You love like crazy. I know it's Jesus. Of course, it's Jesus within you, but you, but you allow him to do that. And what's in you, we miss everything coming up if we don't unlock what's in you. You know what I'm saying? And just because you don't have the gift to stand up here and speak, and, I mean, maybe you do. We've never tried it. Maybe we should try that. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but because the church would normally go like, oh, you know, it's Miss Noel. Like, she's great. She's great. But let's give the mic to, and then throw out the, whatever the biggest name is. And I'm saying, let's put the mics down and learn how to love from the people that actually love. That's what I'm saying for me. 
And this next season, I'm, I am going after what it means to love people because I have not. I have not loved people anywhere close to how I was designed to love people. The fact that I can walk by people and not look at them and at least just give them a smile because I'm too busy that day proves I got a lot of places to grow. I, I, have, I have turned away loving people because I had something ministerial to do. And I'm your, I'm your pastor. I've done that. And I can say that with complete freedom because I was wrong, but because I'm the righteousness of God, he brings that to the light. He right now in my life is shining a light on it, and that will not be the case of me in the next season. Uh, so I love it, right? So Paul says, I could speak prophecies, profound understanding of God's secrets, possess unending supernatural knowledge, and look at a mountain and say, move, and it obey me. But if I've never learned to love, it means absolutely nothing. Listen to this verse. If I were to be so generous as to give everything away I own to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr, without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. So now he's going even further. He messed with prophecy and faith and tongues, and all that stuff, and he's saying, now let's get to the depth of it. If I were to be a martyr and burn at the stake for this thing, yet I have never done it, or I haven't done it, with the pure motive of love, I would have gained nothing. Right? So what Paul is saying is, it's greater to love your neighbor than it is to even say, I'll give my life for this thing. Because if you love your neighbor, guess what? You'll give your life for this thing. What is 1 John 3? We just read it. It's self-sacrificing love. We know how to love because we view it through Jesus. What did Jesus do? He laid his life down for us. What Philippians 2, he considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, even becoming a man and submitted to death on a cross. Right? He had equality with God and he laid it down and humbled himself so that he could lay his life down for us to prefer us so that hopefully we could bear such an image of him that we are willing to lay down our lives for other people. Man, man, like loving them is really gonna take me out of my way. Well, then let it die. Okay, and this is what, he's, this is what he says. He says, Love is large, and we need to memorize this. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle, hello, and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. There's the covet thing. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. It's a good marriage verse right there. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. I just, I mean, I'd like to speak that into 2020 right now. Love is not easily irritated. The other translation of that is overly sensitive. Whew. 
not easily irritated, or quick to take offense. The other translation of that is resentful, quick to be resentful, or here's the other one, it does not keep score. The Aramaic translation is love does not stare at evil. Listen to what this, this little footnote right here says. Love will overlook offenses and remain focused on what is good, refusing to hold resentment in our hearts. This is all love. This is what we're called. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Here, we, This is what we're reading. Okay. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. So when John is talking about love and he's talking about how God loves us, how we love others. Paul is using agape every time when he says in 1 Corinthians 13 to love, or love is this. Agape, same love. It's all based on preferential love and ideas about people. If this gets, or excuse me, this in verse 18 in 1 John, let me re, uh, read it one more time just to bring us back. Beloved children, our love cannot be an abstract theory we only talk about, but a way of life demonstrated through our loving deeds. That gets to the meat of John's message, and I'm almost done in this chapter. That gets to the meat of it. Leading into chapter 4, which is unbelievable, 1 John 4 is. He's saying love cannot be something that we talk about as some abstract, unseen idea. Love is legally only love when it moves from theory to actions to a way of life. So holiness is so important because it deals with how you live out your righteousness. Here's a way you can view this. If holiness is a car, love is the gasoline that makes it go. If love is the car, is a car, okay? A car can't move without gas, right? If, if holiness, excuse me, is a car, love is the gasoline that makes it go. Okay, so remember, this is my last page, and I'm going to wrap it up. Agios, which is holiness, Greek, is set apart by and for God. If God is love, which 1 John 4, 8 says it is, if God is love, then we are set apart by and for love. I said this Tuesday night. We don't have any keys players in here, do we, Ellington? Because <laughs> Matt's not here, um, and neither is Daniel. That's all right. We're just going to have to end it without keys. Um, and we'll just have to end it without the goosebumps. Uh, do you know the full, I said this Tuesday night, so if you were here Tuesday night, don't blurt it out. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. That's where we get that. Do you know the full verse of 1 John 4, 8? It's not just God is love. Here's the full verse. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. I mean, now remember, this is coming from the beloved, John, the one who knows beloved identity more than anyone else in Scripture other than Jesus himself, right? Beloved identity. So he is furiously passionate 
about making sure that the early church does not miss the one thing that makes them who they are, which is love. Receiving a love we could never attain on our own, but then leveraging what we've received to mirror that same love into the culture around them. So he says, the one who doesn't love doesn't know God. Why? Because God is love. I believe, I believe we need to redefine power, God moving, revival, salvation, and even the baptism of the Holy Spirit because most of our current understanding of those lacks love when those are nothing other than manifestations of love. Man, brother, he is powerful. You ever hear that in the church? That man's got, that man's got power behind his words. What do we mean? We mean that when he speaks, we get, we get goosebumps. We got power. I, I mean, I think we need to redefine power in the kingdom to those who love and, and I'm saying, and I'm, I say this real cautiously, I avoided this like the plague, just like holiness. Because the minute you start talking about love is the minute that all the deep theological people that tune in every week start turning and running. Because this isn't the deep, the I'm telling you, this is the only deep theological thing that you cannot get anything else apart from. It's love. We don't get Jesus and the cross without love. We don't get the resurrection without love. And we sure don't get Acts 2 without love. So when you are talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, do we picture fire? Because we should. But do we also, going through 1 John 4, 8, knowing God is love, what is the Holy Spirit? It's one-third of the Trinity. It is God. So the Holy Spirit is God. What is God? Love. So the baptism in the Holy Spirit is literally a baptism in love, right? So when I view and we pray for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I believe the primary thing we need to start pursuing is them to be baptized in such a love that they begin to manifest everything else that comes from that. I said this last week, Jesus' miracles. I was studying this, and I want to thank Annalisa. If you're watching this, Annalisa, thank you for the podcast, the, the uh, Jewish teaching podcast. It's been awesome. Um, I think she's watching, but uh, there's this uh, podcast, and it's a, a Messianic Jew, which is basically a Jew nationality that believes in Jesus. So a Christian, they just are Jew. And um, teaching on some of the early teachers that were teaching around the same time Jesus was teaching. And, uh, and I didn't know, I literally had no idea until I started looking some of this stuff up. But around that time, it wasn't just, see, our gospel, the gospel was written to make a case for Christ. I don't want to say make a case, to, to uh, be an historical account of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospels were written as. So the reason there are things in the gospel about other people around that culture is because the gospels were not written to just be a Jewish history writing. It was writing us to give us a history of Jesus, okay? But there's a lot of things that went on around the same time as Jesus that history looks back and we know of them operating in ministry roles. And so anyway, there were rabbis back then that were not against Jesus. Religious teachers and scribes that weren't against Jesus, they actually rolled right in line with everything he taught. Not all of them, of course. 
But there were some, and I forget the, one, the uh, different names, but we need to do a study on this one day. But anyway, that were operating in massive, massive miracles. There was one that would teach his followers about, you know, everything that was to come, the kingdom, all that stuff, and was so full of the Spirit that there were different stories that we've, we've seen passed down throughout history. One of them in particular I thought was so cool was that there was a poisonous snake that was biting everybody in the region and killing them. They go to him knowing that he's a spirit-filled man from God, and they say, hey, can you pray over this that this snake will just go away and stop killing people? He walks over to the hole where the snake is and puts his heel in the hole, going back to Jacob and Esau, right? And as he does that, the snake bites him, and the snake dies. This is history, okay? This isn't just a made-up story. This is literally in history. Around the same, right after Jesus would have, been, would have ascended. Pulls the snake out, throws it over his shoulder, walks into a classroom and says, sin is the only thing that will actually kill you. Right? So, so why, why do I say all that? Because when Jesus was operating and what he was operating in, it wasn't the miracles alone that blew everybody away. Because they had seen other people operate in miracles, the prophets, etc. Okay, so it wasn't just the miracles. Here's what set Jesus apart and why we have the writings that we have. Because almost all, not all, but most of his miracles happen to people that the religious circle would have rejected. So, so his miracles, the woman at the well, for example, is so profound, not just because of what he told her, not because of the prophetic insight, but because of the crazy outlandish love that was pouring from him that he was willing to go against the cultural norms to reach somebody everybody else in his group of people had rejected, right? The woman with the issue of blood. No one would touch her, avoided her. Why? Because if you read in the Old Testament, women with the issue of blood or anybody with an issue of blood would have been rejected from the community because they would have been unclean. She touches the hem of his garment, which by Old Testament definition would have made him unclean. But instead of him becoming unclean because of her touching him, instead she receives the love from a Messiah that calls her who she is, daughter, and is completely healed in love. So, so G, you have to read the Gospels through the lens of what John is trying to tell us in 1 John and the Gospel of John, which is the thing that makes the Messiah the Messiah is him offering a love that could only come from God himself. Are y'all with me? In fact, the only reason 1 John was written, it was written later on, probably after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, he wrote 1 John as a clarification book to what his gospel held. Because it was such a profound idea of love, he had to come in on the back end and say, no, I need to go a little deeper into this. This is what this is all about. That's why we have 1 John. So I, I believe we need to redefine some of these things that we have as uh, Christian mottos. Move, that's a move of the Spirit. Man, that's a move. That's a power of God. That's revival. What's revival? Is it a group of people learning how to love extravagantly? Because if so, then yes, that is revival. Revival. 
is power for us having faith to move mountains or you having the capability to actually love your neighbor and, you ready for this, love your enemies? Matthew 5, 14. He commands them to not just love the people that are with them. He commands them to love their enemies. Let me say, let me say this. I wasn't going to say this. I, I just feel it right now. So uh, y'all love me. I, I, think, I think every issue, every issue going on in the world right now would be solved if people love their neighbor as themselves and love their enemies. Let's look at race. If one group of people love their neighbor as themselves, there would be no higher or lower person because you're loving your neighbor as yourself. And then on the flip side, those who have been affected by it could hear the revelation to love your enemies. You meet a great love with a great love, and what does it produce? Great love, right? I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you can't fight hate with hate. You can only fight hate with love. Right? I mean, this, is, I mean, this, has, been, this has been stirring in me. It's like, man, what, what do we, because I've been asking the question, what do we do with this, and what do we do with this, and what do we do with this, and what do we do with this, all throughout our society? And as he begins to show me love, it answers every single question I've been asking over the past six months. Lord, how do we respond to this? Love. No, 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 okay, 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 I get that, I get that, but what do we do? Love. And that's convicting to me, because I, like I said, I haven't been doing that well. How, how do we teach the church truth while making sure it's all drenched in love for everybody else? That's, that's convicting for me. Why? Because almost everything we teach goes against most people around here. Almost all of it. And so how do, how do we deliver that while also understanding that these aren't enemies, and even if they are enemies, we're called to love them. But these are brothers and sisters, Taking a deep, so why did Jesus go so against the Pharisees? Why was he so passionately against the Pharisees? Was it because he hated them? Or was it because they were his brothers and he loved them and didn't want them to see themselves anymore as pretenders? I mean, you, you, like, you know what I'm saying? You got to start morphing the gospel, right? Why did Jesus go so against the Pharisees? It wasn't because he hated them. He went so against the Pharisees because he was saying, you and I are the same. We come from the same place. I know what you're designed to be, and this is not it. That's why he was so passionate with the Pharisees, but then treated sinners totally different. Right? Because one of them needed love. The other one, in one way, the other one needed a love of a brother saying, this ain't it. You know what I'm saying? But both of those were drenched in love. And I'm, I'm, I'm praying over this next season that the Lord will actually teach us how to love people. And where this starts, though, where this starts is you learning how to let him love you. This isn't, this isn't something that you can learn. This love is one of the few theological things that you can't sit in a classroom and attain so much knowledge you know what it is. 
You can do that with every other theological statement. You can do that with kingdom stuff, with rapture stuff. All you want to do, you can do that. You can sit in a classroom and learn so much that you know exactly what it is. But love cannot be learned in a textbook, and it can't be learned through hearing, understanding, and going through classes. The only way that love can be understood in its fullness is for you to experience it from the one who is love in and of himself. So if God is love, then the only way to get love is to encounter God. So I said this Tuesday, we, and I'm wrapping up. I keep saying that just so y'all feel good about us. Um, but I'm actually really about to wrap up. Um, it's the great thing about watching online. Y'all can turn it off anytime and we don't, I'll never know. But uh, as I was um, just, just thinking through some of this stuff, I had the thought, and I mentioned this with holiness and truth, but like as believers, okay, think, just think for this. Think about this. If God is love, which he, he is, okay? If God is love, that means the only people who know what legitimate love is and who hold legitimate love are those in God. So just because it's a word that is manufactured worldwide on a crazy basis does not mean people know what love is because love defined apart from God who is love is not love, right? So you can label, I say this all the time because I'm weird, you can label, I said this last week, an apple tree, an orange tree as much as you want, but it does not change the fact that it's an apple tree, right? We can call tolerance love as much as we want but it doesn't matter how many times you say it, that does not make it love. The only thing that's love is God. God is love. And so when I say we're going to have to take stands and we're going to have to teach things that are, and not just me, we, okay? Because I'm not in your workplace. You can send them a link to a podcast or you can minister to them yourself. I think you should do the second. But we're going to have to encounter people that we're going to have the opportunity to either take a step back and be like, you know what, you know, take the world's stance on love or love them enough to show them what true love is. So Jesus could go to the woman at the well and be like, it's all good. Everything will be okay. You know, I mean, everybody's doing that anyway right now. It's, it's all good. Or he could say, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband either. Right? I mean, how many, I, th I think this is Damon Thompson or Bill Johnson or somebody else smarter than me, but they said, what kind of love says, go get your husband? Right? What kind of love says, while all these people are enamored, with what he's saying. They're, they're just not like, give us a miracle. And he says, all right, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What, what kind of love does that? That's weird. In the natural, right? That's, that's weird. In the natural. What, what was he doing? As he was given, in that moment, 12 access to what nobody else could have access to because they refused to go through the gate of love. 
That's what he was doing. So when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, it wasn't for the 5,000 or 20,000 women and children, however many were there. It was for the 12 that were behind him. And as he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, 20,000 are saying he's crazy. 12 are saying, let's go. Now we can consume him. <laughs> right? Right? He's the bread of life. I didn't mean that literally, so y'all don't be weird. But you know what I'm saying? Right there immediately. <laughs> so, but listen, 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 listen. Bring it back. I'm I'm done. I, I want you to help me, though. As a church, as a church, we, we could, we could right now be inheriting the keys to some really, really big stuff. I don't, I don't want to say we could. We are inheriting the keys to some big stuff, and it, but it, it starts with learning how to love. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. To prefer your neighbor as yourself. So when you go to post something on Facebook, how many of y'all go to post stuff and then you just delete it and feel better? I do that all the time, right? This is why I stayed off social media so long and I should stay off of it. But, right, it, when, you, when you go to post something, are you going through the mindset of, I'm gonna love every one of my friends as I love myself? Or are you quickly irritated and easily offended? Right, we're going into an election. I mean, I can't wait. These debates are going to be awesome. Awesome. One's not going to remember where he is. The other's not going to remember who he is. So, I mean, it's just going to be all just back and forth. We'll find ourselves on Mars at some point. But we're, we're in a political, you know, season, right? The season where everybody's just boom, boom, boom. What if we as a church could come and instead of having the fist ready, we come with the mindset of turning the other cheek? Right? Man, I don't agree with that stuff you teach. That's all right. Jesus loves you. You know what I'm saying? When every, and y'all, y'all, the one saying that is the one that's ready to fight. You know what I'm saying? Like when somebody says something about, I won't say the rapture anymore. When somebody says something about anything else in scripture, I'm, cessationism, I'm ready. Right? But the number one thing I could do in that moment is to love them. Sometimes that means give them truth, but even when I give them truth, it is drenched in love, right? We don't go after offense and then say we love. We love, and that will produce people not being offended. So I can give you truth. I can give it to you in a way that is drenched with love that leaves you being more encouraged after receiving it than leave being offended, and then on the flip side, if you're receiving the opposite of that, you could respond by being offended or you could respond by saying, that's not who I am, that's all good, and keep living your life. Because who the sun sets free is free indeed. Okay, this is, I, I know this is too simple for a lot of y'all, but this is rocking me. So um, I'm going to pray. I, I, I don't do this a lot, but does anybody else have anything they want to throw in there? I just say that just cautiously because that is dangerous. But um, if not, we'll go. But yeah, what you got? You can just holler it out.
Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's me, because y'all know we, we give some, some tough stuff sometimes. And to be honest with you, I'm going back right now and saying, did I say that in love? Who do I need to ask for forgiveness? Who do I need to forgive? It's all love. All right. Well, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then we'll be done. I know it's a little weird without music, but that's all right. I guess we need to get used to that. Lord, I thank you for this. I pray that, that we would, one, learn to receive the measure of love that we are designed to receive. Do not let us stop short of what we're actually called for. So let us receive such a measure that it begins to overflow, and as it overflows, we begin to actually love our neighbor as ourselves. That we learn to lay down our life for others as you lay down your life for us. Lord, I thank you for loving us with a radical, crazy love that looks beyond our flaws and still calls us perfect anyway. Let us do that for others. When I see my neighbors, my brothers and sisters, people that are in ministry that may not agree necessarily with what we're doing, etc., even my enemies, let me look at them and not see their flaws. Let me love them as you love me, which is seeing them for who they are actually designed to be, which is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, even if they're not there yet. I believe by us loving them the way that they were designed to love is going to reach beyond reality and grasp on to what they were actually designed to do and be and call for and bring it out into the open so that Yahweh begins to see sons and daughters come home that everybody else in the world discounted. But that love is going to cast such a bright light over America that this time next year we're not going to be deeper into uh, disunity and people being against each other and people being offended at each other. But this time next year, we're going to be so unified because of a group of people committing to the life of love that the, um, I believe the kingdom of America will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, if we could do that. And so, Lord, we're going to see that. We're going to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to see this thing turn. We're already seeing, I'm talking about coronavirus at this point while we're praying, asking you shall receive. Lord, I believe we're seeing a turn in this. I pray that you would finish the job in Jesus' name. I pray that kids going back to school won't even have to think twice about it because of how fast it's eradicated. Lord, I pray against the storms in the Gulf right now. I pray against them. I put a halt to them in Jesus' name. I pray that there'll be nothing more than a shower where they thought there was going to be destruction. Lord, I pray over America right now as we're going into an election, as we're getting into this season. Lord, I pray that you would just rewire us to see not party lines, but to see people for who they are, which is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, eternity on the heart of every man and woman. Lord, we will love extravagantly because we've been loved extravagantly. In your name, amen.